The lesson today is in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the women, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made joint cloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The word of our Lord. Probably helpful to point out that I probably don't have a career in writing children's books, uh, given that (laughs) fabulous performance. But uh, these stories are actually not uh, written for children. They are written for adults. Uh, And they're often quite difficult. And I would argue this is maybe one of the most difficult. Uh, And it comes right here at the beginning of the story. I, I want to spend a little time, uh, I think most of you, uh, if you were to hear this story, you would uh, be able to tell me what the u- usual title of this story is. Uh, anyone, do you want to take a stab this morning? What's our usual way that we describe this story? The, what's that? The Fall of Man. It's exactly right. Uh, I don't particularly care for this title. I don't see any falling, actually, so... Uh, I think there's other ways to look at this story. Um, and, uh, but I do have a friend who used to be in the advertising industry, and one time uh, Cadillac was trying to decide if they could make sports cars, uh, and it was one of Cadillac's biggest failures because Cadillacs are big. They're not sports cars. It's very hard uh, to look at stories or look at things in a different way once you've already decided what they are. Uh, but that's what I'm going to try to do a little bit this morning. I'm not saying that the story doesn't have Augustine as the one who branded it the fall of man. Uh, it has some of those elements to it, I'm sure. Uh, but I just want to pause and look at some of the other parts of the story a little bit this morning. So uh, before I do that, I do want to read the rest of the story because I think it's important. Uh, Jim left off at, uh, the woman tricked me and I ate. The rest of it goes like this. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done all this, cursed are you among all the animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I put enmity between the woman and you, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike at his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the man said, and he said to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust. Dirt ball. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, stir up your holy power this day and come. Send your spirit into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ears, that we may hear a word for us today anew, and that we too might then live out that which we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you were here last week, uh, one of the things I did is I made this argument that in the beginning, uh, God created the world and there is both a divine masculine and a divine feminine that is at play in the beginning of the creation story. Uh, I didn't do a very good job of explaining that, so I'm going to take a little time to explain some of this right now. Part of the reason why I think it's important is at least in part, this story has been used to make men the dominant feature of almost every Judeo-Christian religious orientation that we've had up until this point in history. And I think it's important to look back into these stories and notice some of the subtle cues that are actually in the story that may have some indications that that might not have been the whole of the story. What I argued was is that in the beginning of the story, when God creates and the world was formless and void, there is suddenly this rush of a violent wind that is going across the void. And the the words in Hebrew for this violent wind is actually a great wind or a ruach Elohim. And the word ruach is is the word for spirit or breath, and it's feminine. And what actually is coming across the void is this breath or spirit of God. I make the argument that the breath or spirit of God has this feminine connotation from the very beginning. That creation itself is born out of this divine relationship between the masculine and the feminine. And I think it has some play here in this story too. And Jim, I'm glad you sort of stumbled over a little bit of this because I do think it's a weird phrase in our story from today that Adam and Eve hide, but then they hear God walking in the garden in the breeze of the evening. Have you ever said you went out to go for a walk in the breeze of the evening? That phrase just sort of caught my attention. And so when I went to go look, do you know what the word for breeze is in the Hebrew? It's ruach. It's the same divine feminine presence that's there at the beginning. Now, why in the world would Adam and Eve hear anybody walking in a garden? Have you ever been out in the woods and do you hear people walking? No, you hear them talking. I wonder if it's possible to think that what Adam and Eve heard after they hid 
was the divine feminine and the divine masculine taking a walk at the end of the day. At least it's there and possible in my mind that the divine feminine and the divine masculine are walking around in the garden together. And why is that important? It's, I think, important to lift up the divine feminine in the story whenever we see it as an indicator that this creation was neither designed to be male or female, but both, and everything in the spectrum therein. They heard God talking with God's self in the garden. Let us make human beings in our image. Let us suggest that creation is an act of the outpouring of the mutual relationship of the divine feminine and masculine. Now, I searched high and low to find any scholar who would back me up. I found none. So it's Pastor Scott's interpretation, and you can take it or leave it. Nonetheless, the divine breeze goes for a walk. Now let's take a quick, take a quick turn, if we could, and look at the serpent uh, this is one of the most interesting parts of the story to me. Uh, what do we normally, I'm, cur I'm curious, what do you normally think about this serpent? How do you make sense of this snake is the way that we've often talked about it. Uh, is this evil? What is the snake in this story? Does anybody just, I know this is a hard question to ask, just cold turkey, but anybody have any thought? What is the snake? Don't know. Satan. Any others? So here's the weird part to me. Where does this snake come from? What's the story say? More crafty than any of the other creatures that God had made. What, what in the world does that say? Somehow the snake is part of God's creation. I want to suggest something that a guy named uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs actually talks a lot about in this particular story. There's something that we are really good at in the West. We love dualisms and things that are binary. We like good and evil. We like to separate ourselves into body, mind, and soul. We like to separate things out. And one of the problems with that is it wrecks the unity or the wholeness of things. And one of the things that I think it does is if you separate the snake out and somehow call it some sort of external evil, it isn't God's responsibility. I actually think the story is going out of the way to make this a story where everyone who is in the story has some culpability and responsibility. Who is responsible for evil in the world according to the Hebrew scripture? Ultimately, God. All over the place, the Hebrew scripture talks about this. One of the interesting things that rabbis did at the same time that there were these things called the Gnostic Gospels that were floating around in the world, the same time about that the Nicene Creed comes into being, is that the rabbis actually take this particular passage out of the book of Isaiah and they make it the beginning of their daily prayer. And it will be stunningly surprising when you hear it. They made their congregation say this as the opening to worship. They read this passage from Isaiah that says, God is talking. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. Now in the scriptures that the Hebrew uh, Bible actually uses, sometimes it gets translated as, I create all things. Which I also find to be interesting because the Nicene Creed has this interesting little phrase in it where God creates heaven and earth, all things 
seen and unseen. All things. The Hebrew Bible goes out of its way to make a unity of even the evil in the world as being somehow a part of even God's own self that God created in the world. It is fair and right and appropriate when horrible things happen in the world to turn to God and say, why? Not fair. And it is good and right to beg God to change God's mind. It happens over and over and over in the Old Testament stories. Will you wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah for 100 people? How about 50? How about 20? How about five? How about one? Moses argues with God, coming down from the mountain, smashes the tablets. God is going to wipe out all of humanity, and Moses says, don't do it. Time and time again, the Hebrew Bible makes a unity and a sense of wholeness where we often want to create binary and separation. The most difficult thing about quashing that unity and wholeness for the sake of what I would describe as purity is dualism that allows us to do this. Rabbi Sachs calls this pathological dualism. I'm good, you're bad. I'm on God's side, you're not. Now I'm going to kill you in God's name. It happens all the time. Have you ever seen that happen? The most challenging part, I think, of the Old Testament scripture is that God holds even evil within God's self and creates wholeness and not purity as what God is after and relationship and compassion and forgiveness, not purity. I think that sense is important. I think it's one of the things that we probably most need to learn these days. The other thing that I think about uh, that comes to mind when I, how's that grab you anyway? anyway I know that's a lot. That's heavy, right? Uh, one of the things that Rabbi Sachs says is that monotheism is really hard because you have to hold contradictory things in your mind all at once. One of the things that human beings like to do, we're lazy. We're so lazy. I'm so lazy. It's much easier to create binaries and simplistic answers. But the reality of the world is often far more complicated. <laughs> Uh, and I think that's really one of the most important things of the Hebrew Scripture. The other thing to me, I think, is that uh, one of the things that binaries do is it creates separation, which is what this whole story is about. By the time we get to the end, Adam tries to blame Eve. Uh, I love it. This happens all the time in the Hebrew Scriptures. He turns to God and he says, this woman that you gave me, uh, this is exactly what will happen uh, later on when we sort of get the uh, prodigal son story. Uh, the older brother will say, this son of yours, not my brother, right? It's all these separation things, happens all the time. Uh, that's what happens when we create binaries. We create you and me, and somehow we're separate. Adam and Eve try to blame each other, uh, and then I love it, Eve. <laughs> Eve is really smart. The snake tried to trick me as if she thought she was going to somehow trick God. I think that's really a great answer. Uh, but the most important part to me of the whole entire story is the end. Uh, and it's the part of the story, I think, that we leave out when we call it the fall of man. I, what happens at the end, actually, is that God makes clothes for the man and the woman. <laughs> I actually think if I could rename this story, I'd call it God the Seamstress. Because the way I sort of see this story is that the divine feminine and the divine masculine come together because they have always been together. They have always been unity. 
and they actually put back together what the human beings tried to pull apart. And yes, they're, they're, they're sent out of the garden for sure, but they don't walk out alone. They all walk out together. And I don't think it's inappropriate to look and say that there's some dirt that ends up on God's hands, both literally and metaphorically in the way the story is told. And holding that in contradiction is one of the most difficult things. But at the end of the day, we say this is God's world and God is in charge of it. And what God is after is unity and not purity and relationship and connection. Clear as mud? Here's some other things that I recognize in the story that I think are interesting to look at. I find all these interesting and strange contradictions, uh, both in the story and the way life works. Um, I love how the serpent is crafty, uh, because I'm somebody who likes to be crafty, right? Don't you, don't you like being crafty? Here's the bad news about craftiness. Eve actually, and I think this is, uh, there's another rabbi, uh, a guy um, who wrote How Good Do We Have to Be, uh, and he actually calls Eve quite brave, uh, not only for talking to the serpent, but for actually picking the fruit and then eating it. Uh, because his, his interpretation of the story is this is the emergence of human consciousness. To know the difference between good and evil uh, is to have a human conscience, something that animals don't have. It's a moral way of looking at human beings instead of some anthropological distancy kind of thing. Uh, but the thing that I think is so interesting about all the stories, the servant is crafty. Eve sees that the fruit will make you wise. Wise is the compassionate side of crafty. Crafty is selfish. Wise is selfless and community building. Crafty is, I'm smarter than you. Wise is, we are all working toward the goodness of humanity. I find that to be just fascinating, right, in the way that that lays out, is laid out in the story. The other thing that I think about is the, the so-called punishment is really interesting. Hard work is hard. Going out and tilling a garden is hard. If you have to go out and garden today, it's going to be hot. You're going to get sweaty and you're going to get tired. And then three days later, you're going to go outside and look at your garden and go, that is beautiful. There is reward that comes from the hard work. That's contradictory and interesting. The punishment contains within it the very thing that makes it so beautiful and good. How strange is that? Um, children are incredibly difficult. I don't have any, but I have a two-year-old uh, nephew and a niece, and yesterday they both wanted the same basketball, and they were holding onto it and screaming and yelling at each other because they both wanted the same basketball. And then three minutes later, they're downstairs, and they're sharing with each other their macaroni and cheese, smiling and thinking this is the greatest thing ever, right? Children are both just enormously difficult, and being a parent, I, I can't say for myself, is enormously difficult. The highs and lows will never be the same as if when you have a child. Um, and if you have nieces and nephews, I see that happening too, so it's not exclusive just to parent. That's weird. Both joyful and excruciating children. Death is also hard. Uh, but personally, uh, you know, my dad had a stroke a number of years ago. One of the things that those things do to us is they all of a sudden make you stop dead in your tracks and suddenly you pay more close attention to what's actually happening. Would I ever wish that my dad had a stroke? No. Did it all of a sudden stop and realize for me how important and precious my family was? You better believe it. Suddenly, every moment counts. And you can't carry on your whole life that way. 
But strangely, death makes everything precious. What's strange to me is that in the punishment is both the joy and the suffering of life. And I think about my dog, Luther, who never knew any of those things. Now, I used to say that Luther had the greatest life ever. He went to church every day, he lived on a lake, and he got to go swimming, and he ate plenty of food. But Luther never knew some of the joys and the highs and the lows that you and I will ever know. So is that the fall, or is that a blessing? There's also something interesting that I think is really worth looking at in terms of what happens here, and this is where I want to call this the story of the seamstress, uh, because there, is, there are consequences for when we do things. And the interesting thing in the story is that it doesn't let you... Cre- if you really read the story, you, you can't be Adam and blame Eve. You are culpable. You could try, but you read the story. And if you really read the story, sorry, Adam, this isn't all Eve's fault. You were there. You didn't do anything. Sorry, buddy. You're a dirtball, okay? Eve can't get away with it either. She can't blame the snake. She tries, but I think in her heart of hearts, she knows, nope, I did this. Even God doesn't get off so scot-free, so to speak. And yet there are consequences. There are boundaries that are created. And I would say the same thing about boundaries. We know that when kids have an open field to go play in, they'll often find it terrifying and they'll huddle around the adults. But if you put a nice fence around it, they'll go and explore all avenues of the entire playground. That's amazing. Boundaries are both helpful and restricting. And I think this is interesting about the way we have to think about God. God is all sorts of different, has all sorts of different really important and meaningful attributes. God is a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. God is a God of consequences, but God is also a God of compassion. Our God is a God of boundaries, but also freedom. God is a God of limits and also safety. I think we need both. And as the ones who have been created in God's image, both the male and the female, we are called to execute both in the world. Justice and mercy. To do one or the other is to conflate those contradictory things into one thing that is not what God had intended. At the end of the story, I still think the most important part is this. God comes together with Adam and Eve, makes clothes, loves them, and then sends them out in the world for the next adventure. Because the next thing that happens is even worse. And I hope you come back next week to hear all about it. <laughs>